Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us uh, for another show. And I'm C.R. Wiley, and I am a pastor in the Pacific Northwest. But I'm not there now. I am here in Connecticut in my old stomping grounds with my old friends, Tom and Glenn. But uh, in case you want to know a little more about me, you can find out about me on crwiley.com. Uh, you can visit my church that I'm serving there in Vancouver, uh, Washington, the uh, Westminster Presbyterian Church. Or uh, you can just check me out uh, in the books that I've written uh, on Amazon. Anyway, that's enough about me. So, Glenn, how about you? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history, for now, at Central <laughs> Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Now, are you counting down the days? No. <laughs> Although after my classes today, I might start. <laughs> got it, got it. Well, it's a beautiful day here in central Connecticut, in the uh, Connecticut River Valley. It's got to be pushing 60 degrees. It's bright, and uh, that's very unusual for this time of year. Now, out in the Pacific Northwest, this is kind of just par for the course, but we are in a very different world here in New England, and uh, this is really nice for this time of year. Anyway, we got another guy here. Yep. Tom, tell yeah. us about yourself. Tom Price, uh, systematic theologian, Christian ethicist. I teach both at a variety of places, for now. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, I'm enjoying the weather as well. It, it is, uh, it is a, it's a little bit, it's that time of year where it's not consistent enough. Right. So you have a beautiful day and then you have winds come in from nowhere. Right, right. Maybe even a little, uh, well, just a strange combination of things. I was remarking to someone the other day because it was chilly and windy. Right, right. And I said, I did not realize I was waking back up in a normal British afternoon. But that, was, <laughs> that was what I was familiar with then. I, yeah, I thought yeah. I got away from it. But. Well, there, though, at least the temperature's a little warmer than it can be here in New England. I think, I think that when the colonists first arrived, they were, like, completely just blown away with the sort of the severity of the weather here in North America. And, and they were, you know, further south, but in a much colder area than they were used to. Anyway, that's a whole, that's a, a whole other show. That's a whole other show. <laughs> so let's jump into this show. So, 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 Tom, you are the man. You are the, the man, man of the day or the hour. What are we talking about? <laughs> well, I want to go uh, back to a theme that we've discussed from a lot of angles, and uh, but also come at it from with some fresh uh, reflection. Um, but I want to kind of title this sort of um, the return of the meta narrative. Ooh. So um, that's where I want to kind of <sighs> go with that. Just when you thought it was safe to <laughs> go back to academia. <laughs> Just when you thought it was safe. It is the return of the meta narrative. Now, maybe it's worth discussing why that's even an interesting question to bring up and what do I mean by that. Yeah, uh, I think that's good because uh, I, I, I know that Glenn and I understand what you mean, but maybe no one else does. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, well, this may be a way into it. Everyone's now talking about people and their narratives, right? Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. So, lived experience and that, narrative. Are that's like right. Things, yeah. And so the best way to dismantle someone else or deal with their arguments or propositions or claims is just basically to show that they are tied to a constructed narrative, which basically advantages the particular person that's weaving it. Ooh. So now we have news that mm -hmm. is criticizing the other news mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for their narrative construction mm -hmm. to make reality conform to um, their interests and their advantages. And so what, what narrative 
means in this context is is sort of a a, a story, if you will, of what is the case, mm-hmm. but not told as it conforms to reality, but mm-hmm. as it conforms to the kind of reality that the agent promoting it wants it to be, or right. or or. Um, weds their life experience into it so that it's a narrative that's consistent with their personal identity or group identity. Right. Now, um, is there any hope that people have uh, for actually getting in touch with reality, or is that just its (laughs) foregone conclusion that that's impossible? Well, I I do think there is hope for that, and maybe I'll drive back to that, because I think that was a big issue with the that postmoderns had, with meta narratives to begin with, um, so the, the so it'd be a good idea. I think to to define meta narrative. Meta narrative. Well, um, I'm going to butcher the French here, so I should let Glenn say it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, so the best way for me to say a French word like the one of the famous writers for on postmodernism, Lyotard. <laughs> Lyotard. Okay. Um, I just say L with Utah, but I don't think that works either. <laughs> Maybe Glenn can clarify it on it, but I try my best. Anyway, he, he was famously known for coining the term, uh, basically defined um, postmodernism as, as no longer finding credible um, any kind of universal unifying story to which all other experience and stories have to finally conform if they're going to be considered real, true, in touch with reality. Yeah, and I think it's good to help people know that um, the Christian faith is considered one meta narrative, mm-hmm. but not the only one. So yep. this isn't this isn't just a pushback against the Christian faith. This is a pushback against any, any kind of any uh, attempt kind. to describe reality as such. Yeah, any comprehensive worldview, if you will, right, or, right. because worldview there's a, that's a reason there's a shift from worldview. To narrative, and this is important. I think this is the move from an, uh, what used to be more of an idealistic picture that there are universal universals, mm-hmm. and these can be exhibited in history mm-hmm. um, in ways that there is a continuity even amongst the discontinuity, versus a historicist shift that everything is contingent and in in process. Mm-hmm. So, so the narrative, the, the by using meta narrative. It's basically saying that the, there is an illegitimate grand totalizing effect that is happening when a person or group makes a large scale truth claim in reality vision. And what they're doing is they're taking their contingency and their particularity, their historical conditionedness, and projecting it onto reality and telling everyone else, you need to fit into this. Mm -hmm. And if you get enough power to enforce it, you basically get to structure reality in such a way that you're the one being advanced and made to advantage from it. Yep. So now Mm -hmm. to structure reality already downgrades reality. That's right. You know, because uh, what we're talking about then is sort of a shared perspective that maybe uh, some people are forced into that, that don't want to be part of it. Uh, but the idea is that there's no such thing as a, uh, you know, as they would put it, you know, a view from nowhere. Yeah. You know, so that everything is, is uh, perspectival. 
That's right. right. So the, mm -hmm. the point being that objectivity is impossible. Right. Yeah. Right. Objectivity is um, straight white men's subjectivity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, if, uh, if there had been some other group of people at some point in time, according to this theory, who had been able to pull off what white men yeah. had pulled off, then they would be the meta-narrative well, that we'd right. all be pushing. And they're talking there. about the dominant Western one at this point. But they, right. would, be, they would be in, the, the early postmoderns would be um, in resistance to any meta-narrative. Yeah. Right. This just so happens to be the one that is kind of running the show. Show. Now, one of the things to keep in mind here, because I, I think this oftentimes catches a lot of Christians off guard, um, because the Western meta-narrative, if you will, if you could describe it that way, um, is a wedding of Judeo-Christian ethical culture and contributions with something that, that is, is kind of uh, a moving away from it even when it's dependent on it and ultimately, I think, undermines it. So the Enlightenment has a lot of aspects that are fundamentally in opposition to Christianity even as it is deeply indebted to it. So, so if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that kind of the state of affairs in Western society, you know, Western culture today is Judeo-Christian ethical tradition sort of uh, syncretized with a, uh, an offshoot of that, which is the Enlightenment Project. And that's kind of the, that's the thing that everybody's pushing against now. That's right. And so really what you, you could, if you want to kind of, I mean, this is very general and not specific enough, but if you, since we're in days where we don't need to be that specific, you want to look at kind of a, the cultural opposition going on currently, say, in the U.S. politically you have sort of red and blue, if you will. Mm -hmm. But what you have, in a sense, with all of this battling back and forth, is modernity in conflict with post-modernity in, in a certain form. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna add a more complex dimension to that. But that's one of the things you have. You have the particular and the perspectival coming back, the, the margins coming back to, to um, assert a proper place in, in, in um, public and political life that they felt had been excluded by the classical so-called inclusions of the Enlightenment. And, right. and so the, so the meta-narrative that we uh, see these folks uh, rejecting mm -hmm. is that Enlightenment slash Christian meta-narrative, yes. right? Um, and uh, it's the margins which uh, uh, basically uh, are trying to push back and sort of make a place for themselves and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, now, now maybe you're going to get to this, but this is one of the things that always occurs to me whenever this, this line of reasoning <laughs> is followed. What about just reality as such and the fact that unless you are in some sense in harmony with it, you die? <laughs> yeah. you know, in other words, there, there, are, there are just certain things that... Uh, are not subjective, like eating, yeah, like yeah. Uh, building shelter, like making plumbing work, you know, things of that nature. Yeah, well, because they've moved now to, okay, what has happened here for them, and this is, a, this is an important point, but one of the early postmodern shifts, and they were, they were drawing off of a lot of what they were finding in the social sciences, and this is something that I think if, if it was 
cultivated the right way has a good point because I think this is what Lewis and Tolkien were up to. And, and their, their vision was this notion that raw rationality and or raw experience empirically tested that dimension in the Enlightenment doesn't really get at the full picture. And that most societies, although they use reason and they have experience, have that in, 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 in a myth, a story that, that weaves the meaning world together. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know where you're going, Tom, yeah. but I'm still thinking about plumbing working. Yeah, yeah. Um, really, that, <laughs> yeah. that basic, plumbing yeah. has got to work. Yeah. So there are certain worldviews, or, yeah. or there are certain perspectives yeah. that leave no room for the, yeah. for the, the realities uh, that make plumbing function, you know. Yeah. Now, in other words, um, so what do you do yeah. uh, when uh, you uh, dismiss something as, you know, basic as mathematics, which we've seen happen? Well, or to, to take yeah. a concrete example, another concrete example beside um, math, um, there's an entire uh, area of fat studies that mm -hmm. argues that the Western medical model that says that fat is unhealthy and all the statistics and so on that they can use to show the problems of obesity, they argue that that is a matter of um, a hegemonic uh, oppression of people who are gravitationally advantaged. <laughs> yeah. um, that that, uh, that in, in, in fact, you know, they, they literally will throw out all the medical science, all the research, all the numbers yeah. and things like that yeah. because they argue that that's an oppressive way that thin people have of, of putting down uh, the obese. Well, and, and, but what's underlying <coughs> it is the concept of health. So that would also underlie the need for mathematics in order to make sure that the physics that you are Using to build your bridges. To build yeah. your bridges or, or, or your plumbing system. In other words, mm -hmm. there, we, we have these, these realities, mm -hmm. uh, health, you know, and so <clears> forth, <throat> that, uh, and if all you need to do is push a little bit and you get into these absurdities like you just, uh, just well, demonstrated. But, but their, their answer would be that that was, I think, is, would be that that is the way the Western world has conceptualized these things, but people in Africa, for example, who... Um, don't have the same mathematical conceptions we do. Built perfectly fine bridges, and there are whatever. Yeah, know. yeah, perfectly fine for for the, their purposes. For their purposes, and uh, those purposes are pretty limited. And the Chinese are coming in right now and and, and building new infrastructure. <laughs> I've seen it. Yeah. yeah, but 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 this gets I think to the larger point yeah. that that uh, what we're what, I, what we're playing with here is you know games yeah. that I think. Uh, sort of trade upon uh, yeah. the sympathies and the desire of certain people to see other people succeed painlessly or without mm -hmm. feeling like they're imposing yeah. anything upon them that would be difficult for them to live up to or accept. Yeah. Fundamentally, the way this is being applied now is actually a new meta-narrative, which is where I think Tom well, yeah, is going. Got, yeah. Yeah. But what, what it really is is a political movement that there are some people on the fringes that are pushing it into areas where it really doesn't fit, but it's still nonetheless useful for uh, the political purposes that they have for restructuring society. That's really what it's about. And most of the people who are involved in it would frankly 
not even bother dealing with science. They don't want to go there because that's not the real the, the real issue for them. The real issue is somewhere else. And it's fundamentally social and political. And, and, and I think this is a little bit far down the road than where the initial postmoderns were. I think they were they were onto something, I think, that could have been okay <laughs> with some points. I mean, this is, this is my point, is as a Christian, I don't have to defend a lot of the Enlightenment because a lot of it was, was a fraud. It, it took from Christianity while it undercut all the particulars that ground it. <laughs> it and, and so I don't have to fall into the trap that when somebody like a postmodern criticizes the Enlightenment, they're criticizing also genuine Christianity because I, don't, I think we, I spent my young years learning all of those arguments and everything else of defending Christianity's plausibility within the Enlightenment, which it had marginalized. So there was no big space for, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity or the incarnation in, in public life. Why? It, those particularities were moved out. So I understand being, being having a confession on the margins um, that there is an implausibility in the Enlightenment's meta-narrative, if you will. But that doesn't mean all meta-narrative is bad. Now, these early postmoderns, you had, you had historicist kind of Thomists like Alistair McIntyre, who he understood the historical conditionedness of all, all embodiments of belief. But he, on the other hand, knew that some absorbed the best of other narratives than, better than others. And his argument was what is Aquinas, for example, was able to take an Augustinian tradition in, a Plat uh, in the Platonic and the Aristotelian and bring it into a superior synthesis of reflection when certain others were not able to. So he talks about the way in which the, you can, there are narratives that out-narrate once you're in this world. Um, but that, that's, I think what is going on in the early stage is that what they're doing is peeling back some of the hubris of the Enlightenment that some of its commitments are not historical and contingent versus genuine universals and um, genuine things that can claim universality. I'm not talking about the advance, the, the success of science. I'm just talking about the, the story that is told about it, um, the larger narrative about it, um, that human beings can stand detached to reality and bring it under managerial control for its wishes and, and, and delights and all this. But what ends up happening with this is it starts to think naively, the, the narrative of the postmodern world, that all narratives are the same, basically, or not the same, but are, are all legitimate claims to have a story to be able to, to interpret reality from, in which you just mentioned, not all of them can. Not all interpretations of the world from a particular person, group, tribe, nation, have the capacity, for example, to understand reality in such a way that it would have led to the development of mathematics and science the way that it has. In or just in a sort of more pedestrian you know, sphere, as a pastor, there are people in a typical congregation that you wouldn't trust to tell the story of the church. Yeah. They don't know a lot of things, for one thing, uh, or their perspective is actually skewed for other reasons. Uh, some of those reasons could be just uh, uh, lack of uh, intelligence. Yeah. Uh, they just simply miss things. Um, 
lack of perspective. Sometimes you've got people who are, uh, you know, grind, you know, sort of grinding axes, and they've got they're angry at somebody, and so everything is sort of sort of altered or skewed, mm. and warped because of that. Um, and then there are just some people who are just plain nuts, and then there are people who are heretical. You know, yeah, there there are that's right. a range of reasons why people could get it wrong. Well, see, in, in the in the, the heretic would be a great case in point because that would sort of be, in in that uh, early Christian context, that would be the imposition of the the orthodox Christian meta narrative that marginalize all the voices that the heretics, and so their argument in a today's world would be well. We should give them voice to basically articulate their experiences, even if they happens all the time yes. at Harvard Divinity. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Well, I think one of the more, uh, I guess, humorous aspects when you look back, or sad and depressing, um, is I think what these the naive postmodernists early on were trying to do is is just create a certain kind of pluralism in this so-called meta-narrative, if you will, that gave rise to um, certain things they thought should be included that had been excluded. And we don't need to get into all those now. I'll give you an example. Terry Eagleton, who I met, who smashed drunk in Oxford at a pub, which I think is notorious for Eagleton. Yeah, well, I, if you said Eagleton to me, I would have said, yeah, drunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But one of, this is his line. I just want you to, to look. Now, remember that the postmodern claim is that it, we need to move away from any meta-narrative whatsoever. Just the claim to grand totalizing is, here is the language, it is a, it is a move towards the tyrannical, right? <laughs> okay. You, you have to kind of laugh at that at this point. So in other, in other words, the move to the universal is the move to the tyrannical? So they're, they're, For them, yeah. Okay. It, it's, it, what it is, is the postmodern, um, this is it, what makes our condition postmodern is not only that people no longer cling to the myths of modernity, the postmodern entails the end of an appeal to any central legitimizing myth whatsoever. Not only have all the reigning master narratives lost their credibility, but the idea of a grand narrative is no longer credible. We have not only become aware of the plurality of conflicting legitimating stories, but have moved into an age of the demise of the meta-narrative. And you go down further, and I'm, I'm, I'm quoting uh, Stanley Grenz in his primer on, um, on postmodernism, Consequently, the postmodern outlook demands an attack on any claim to universality whatsoever. It's, it's in that nominalist strand, and it demands, in fact, a war on totality. Now, there's my little bit of ironical laugh, because we're going to watch that the byproduct, this is my point of the return mm, of the meta-terror, right, right. is, is a new meta-narrative growing out of almost a rejection of almost everything that the postmoderns wanted to do to, to a new claim on totality with, with with basically critical theory of all things. But listen to Eagleton's. This, this shows you how different the kind of postmoderns of a few generations are from now. Postmodernism signals the death of such meta-narratives whose secretly terroristic function, right, is to ground and legitimate the illusion of a universal human history. So this is kind of your you know, war on the universals again. We are now in the process of awakening from the nightmare of modernity <laughs> with its manipulative reason and its fetish of the totality, right? Into the, listen to his, his metaphors here. We're going into the laid back pluralism of the postmodern. Now I just want to throw to our audience how many of them watching the repercussions of postmodernism in its outward 
expressions these days see that it's laid black, but laid back pluralism. <laughs> no, definitely not laid back. That's not that's not a word that comes to mind when I think about this. Heterogeneous range of lifestyles and language games which have renounced the nostalgic urge to totalize and legitimate themselves. But you see, this is exactly as indebted as critical theory is to the postmodern vision to get its ground game going. It has produced everything that is exact antithesis of what the postmoderns set out to do based on its early claimants. And so it is basically through is a, another uh, great book for people to read, Theory's Empire, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, is that it's basically become a new totalitarianism. Yeah, I'll have that porter that these guys had. What was it? Was it? Chuck. Yeah, I'll have I'll another have as well. Yeah. So now, again, I, I have this, I, I guess I have this fault of kind of getting back to the concrete here. Um, so I was just, you know, in Seattle. And, um, you know, I've been in Portland recently. I'm in the Pacific Northwest. So when people hear the, you know, the, those, those cities, of, hear about those cities, they think of kind of the insanity that is, uh, you know, associated with them with autonomous zones and daily riots and stuff like that. Um, and when you, when you visit those cities, if you're looking for that, you'll see it. It's sort of like, you know, when you are moving across America and you've, rided, you've rented a rider truck it seems like everybody in america is you know moving and has rented a rider truck just like you and because <laughs> you see them everywhere but uh what often gets screened out is the fact that um yes those things are happening in those places but the reason why those things can happen in those places is because people actually want to live in those places and the reason why people want to live in those places has nothing to do with autonomous zones and insanity you know, or people living in tents on the side of the road. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with the fact that you've got some function, you've got some functioning uh, institutions, you've got uh, economic growth. And when I drive through Portland or I drive through Seattle, the thing that impresses me is the ubiquity of the yellow vest. <laughs> Who wears yellow vests? Generally speaking, construction workers. Generally speaking, men. Generally speaking, white men. <laughs> and when you drive through those places, uh, you see thousands of these guys building skyscrapers, building highways, and cleaning up, frankly, after the people who riot, who destroy property. In other words, I think of the nonsense that we are talking about here with regard mm -hmm. to postmodernity is, you know, is basically what I think of it is, 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 a, is a luxury. Yeah. This is a luxury lifestyle uh, where you get to slum and cuss and spray paint and defecate in public and do all these different things because you actually live in a world that works and your way of thinking contributes nothing to the way it works. In fact, it's detrimental. And if, ever, if we were to all adopt, yeah. or we were to simply just uh, sort of concede that this is just all, you know, uh, I guess, uh, oppressive meta-narrative at work, all that stuff would stop working. In other words, there would be no room left for these people. They would be living in huts. They would be living in caves. They'd be living under bridges. Well it's, well, it's a curious thing because 
Yeah. By, 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 let me just finish with yeah. this. I remember years ago that uh, remember uh, Rosemary uh, Ruther. She was uh, mm-hmm. a, 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 a feminist theologian. Feminist theologian. She was yeah. at B, BC, I think it was, or BU. Yeah. And uh, you know, she spent a lot of time criticizing you know, the institution that she worked for. And so somebody asked her one day, well, why don't you just leave? You. Why, why are you here? And she said, this is where the Xerox machine is. <laughs> that, was her, that, was her, uh, that was her argument. In other words, this is the place that pays me. This is the place yeah. that has the, uh, the large endowment. This is the place that has the, um, the institutional structure that makes my, my, my agenda, my, my little project possible. Well, see, this is it's one of the things I, want, I was going to get to, and I, I'm not going to go on it now, but it, it's the, you know, how in the world have we gotten to a point where you can promote a, a meta-narrative, if you will, that is such with so much hypocrisy right. that there's, there, there, is, there is still yet nothing that's full embrace. And I think my, my point, I think something similar you made last week, is that it, it's one thing, yes, to make a world work, and, 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 and I think one of the, the ways Christian answers to the, the, um, the fullness of its theological vision that does not deny all the aspects of reality um, is that we have to keep pressing these people who claim they love the particular and the concrete to the particular and the concrete, because I think how that's they it, that's it. how they get away with it, and this is something I, I think further in the in the today's talk I, I want to go. How they get away with it is by removing themselves from using slogans, key terms, and triggers, none of which have to ever justify themselves, because they are all psychological vehicles in a climate that has been geared to be triggered by them. And yeah, so they don't have to work. Yeah. Two comments here. First of all, the weird thing is that in critical theory, as um, the formal version of it, they reject both universals and particulars. Yeah. You, your identity is your group identity, with the, the intersection of all the various groups you're in. Yeah. So you are neither an individual nor a representative of humanity as a whole. Yeah. Um, the, but but uh, the, other, the other thing which I just lost. So it'll come back. <laughs> that's right. Where that's right. is it? Yeah, that's, you, you're allowed to do that, Glenn. You're yeah. allowed to do yeah. that. But I, I think that with regard to all of these things, um, I wonder at times whether or not the only, really the only uh, solution or antidote to, to this kind of mental disease is just to let it play itself out and prove its lack of, uh, its incapacity to, to make a, a, a world li- worth living in. The problem with that in practical terms is you could say that about communism. Too. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. you know, we're talking, what is it, over 100 million dead? Yeah, oh, I agree. If you allow it to work, it, it, and it is, critical theory is just as much a totalitarian system as, as well, any of the others out there. Well, the yeah. fir- the fir- the f- I guess the first point before moving, because I do want to explore all these, and we're jumping right into where, where I think it leads, but one of the things I, just the curious aspect of the need for this shift from this... Eagleton ideal of this kind of, you know, happy pluralism that it was supposed to engender. I think Richard Rorty thought this similar thing. Actually, to Richard Rorty's credit, he actually didn't like the left because he thought it was too much like fundamentalist religion, hmm. which is, and he didn't think it, it really was after what postmoderns like himself were up to, pragmatist, uh, with a pragmatist orientation. 
But, but what is the switch from a whole basically reaction to Western civilization, no matter how you chop it up, and Christ, they would reject Christianity as a meta-narrative. Actually, at, at fundamental root, I think they are after that anyway, because I think the Enlightenment was mimicking Christian, the universality of Christianity, but in a, in a that moved away from its core confession. So I, I think what made the Enlightenment work was its aim to mimic the Christian yeah. universality. Now, if I may jump in here, I yeah. remembered what it was I yeah. forgot. Yeah, I'm good. All right. See? This, this <laughs> stuff is all mm -hmm. actually like the Enlightenment. It's a Christian heresy. Yes. And that, that's the thing that people don't get. Um, and we've talked about this before. No other culture in the world, historically, has valued the, the underdog, the oppressed. That is a value that comes to us through Christianity. And what mm -hmm. they've done is they've, it's literally a heresy. They've taken that one idea and run with it so far that it's distorted everything else in the entire, in the entire outlook. That's and, basically the way heresy always works. Right, that, and, that's what and it and is. I think it's driven by that, and I hate to just go to a psychological or spiritual kind of route, but I think it's largely driven by a certain resentment. Mm -hmm. um, it, we, we've unpacked that before. Yeah, yeah. But I, I really, you know, it... it really steeped in this bitter hatred of any kind of created order, mm -hmm. even in its thin form of the, in the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. you, you see that kind of... There's a preference for, the, for chaos. The chaos, the or the self-forming, and the, and the amorphous, the protean. Right. Um, but one of the things that I, I've always been fascinated is, is how this switch happened, how it moved from that kind of what we, we knew in university, the kind of postmodernism that basically said, you know, oh, now even the creation scientist is going to have a room at the table <laughs> without being run out of the room. That was short-lived. Yeah, that's right. Um, but and, again, there's certain kinds of absolutism they absolutely abhor, and they feel they feel morally justified in doing it. And yet, I mean, it's it's this it's strange. It, it it's an absolutism. This is my point. A meta narrative, an absolutism, that doesn't worry about having to justify itself because it's self justifying by them positing it just by their own sheer moral assertion. That's how they do it. It's just positive, but then it, it becomes so attractive because it is an absolutism. And I think this is where young people who have looked at a church so steeped in relativism and popular culture that it has lost the doctrinal conviction that the church has had at its best moments in time. And it's attracted to, there young people and everything else are attracted to something that has a larger cosmic total vision that can give some kind of sense and orientation to their moral selves, which Christianity, has not, and I literally watched on for two minutes, okay? There is a local church I went to a few times, and they still show up in my Facebook, and they were having a live conversation on what should have been a holy day and a discussion of, of you know, its significance um, on being allies, how oh, to brother. be allies. And this is an evangel local evangelical church on being, being allies and and how yeah. to, yeah. but this is what I mean is even in these churches, there's such a thin spiritual conviction grounded in sound doctrine and solid Christian practice that this is more attractive. Yeah, I, I think that we need to get to, uh, we need to accept yeah. that um, a, a large portion of the evangelical world is apostate. I think we just yeah. need to accept that. Yeah. And that we need to kind of move on. Yeah. And moving on, uh, 
you know, is messy and painful, um, but we have to orient ourselves toward orthodoxy and and building things um, because we we we're kind of in this uh, sand trap, if you will. Yeah. You know, you know, like when you play golf. I don't know if you guys play golf, but you know, the the, the what makes a sand trap in a golf course so horrific <laughs> is that is that you can kind of you know work really hard to try to get the you know, the ball out of the sand trap and find yourself worse off with each attempt. You know, particularly if the sand trap is designed... That's in where I would be stuck. <laughs> so so there, there is a lot of stuff uh, right now within evangelicalism that's, that's functioning like a sand trap. Yeah. And you just... Uh, it, it's, it's sad, but we just kind of need to leave people in the trap. Yeah. And just move on. Yeah. So, like, if you're playing a foursome, you know, just leave the guy there. <laughs> <laughs> move on to the next hole. Uh, that's really where we are. Yeah, and, and I think the division, I mean, I know from kind of internal in evangelical institutions, letters going around are talking about how, you know, in seminary institutions and everything else, how churches are fundamentally at breaking point divide everywhere over Yep. Over it, it's a cut and dry thing, but that I think that was my point is what we're dealing with, and we have to make sure we don't get caught in the trap. We, as Christians, should not be dealing with one side of Christianity defending the Enlightenment and the other side defending postmodernism. Well, let's stop there. Yeah. I think because I know what you mean. Yeah, and Glenn knows what you mean. Yeah. But how are churches defending the Enlightenment, but thinking that they're defending the faith? Well, I think sometimes they think of just kind of uh, Christian pietistic nationalism is the equivalent of classic historic Christian orthodoxy. So how does that tie to the Enlightenment, though? So, like, you, you mentioned pietism. Yes. And you mentioned kind of nationalist. Well, it, it would almost equate sometimes um, sort of politi modernist political popularism maybe on the right with evangelical spirituality because they share certain ethical things. Okay. And so not saying that we wouldn't be on that side politically, saying that we must distinguish ourselves because a lot of the attack of left is at that straw man right. rather than genuine biblical conviction. So you right. just get lumped into the whole colonialist right. shell that is part of, part of the... the um, Have you ever seen that film, The Mission? Yes. It has Robert De Niro. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's a great film. It I is think a great, I, and great soundtrack, it, too. Yeah, yes. and that yeah. explores this very problem. Yes, yeah. Because uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with the film, it's about uh, a Catholic mission in South America uh, that uh, has been very successful in evangelizing the Native Americans in South America, so much so that the uh, political powers of Spain and Portugal uh, are tremendously frustrated with this particular mission because it's standing in the way of certain colonial That's right. you know, sort of uh, objectives and, yeah. and political agendas and stuff like that. And how uh, the priests yeah. uh, are, you know, retain uh, their Christian faith against. Yeah. Now, some lefties... Yeah might watch that film and think, oh, yeah, that's what we're up to. But no, no, yeah. that's not what you're up Actually, to. Actually, the filmmakers were on that side. If you read the um, 
the statement at the end of it. It was intended to be a promotion of liberation theology. Oh, is it? I didn't realize well, that. The, the, you have to look at the, the, there's a final comment that is made that gives away the game. Got you, got yeah. you. But, it, but in terms of the sort the of the... history of it, I think it's different, yeah. Well, not, not only that, but within the film, there are certain, um, more or less, uh, I think, classic theological, tr- you know, sort of tropes mm-hmm. that, are, that are used to deal with the genuine spiritual state of the priests and their need for yeah. salvation. And interestingly, the, um, the the key figure is the one who, uh, played by Jeremy Irons, if I remember, right, right. who comes out and, and, and in a pacifistic way almost confronts this power with what would look like by the worldly means weakness. That is very, that's very yeah, opposite comes. to liberation theology, and he's considered the hero of the film. They want to make it that he sides with, when he does his mission, he doesn't come in and try to bring imperialism. But as I, as I said, not all Christian mission was about that. And the fact that Christianity was a vehicle um, oftentimes used to do that, there is a whole complex of issues we can't really go into now. But, but, the, but the point is, he didn't, he didn't answer his call by doing liberation theology in the film. Yeah, yeah, well, the, the character that maybe <laughs> yeah. would be the personification of liberation theology Is was De Niro. De Niro. De Niro. Yes, De Niro. Right. But, but I don't think he comes across as a hero in the end, do you? And he actually, if you notice, he looks, when he tries to win by the sword, and he right. realizes he's going to lose, he looks up and he sees actually the almost a transfigured Jeremy Irons. Yeah, now Jeremy the, Irons is a believer, isn't he? I think he I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think yeah. he's a I think he's the real deal when it comes to Christianity. Yeah, but it been hits uh, but it but it is that is an interesting film and that I think that kind of brings some of the reflection points right um, that we we confront now. But I think um, Glenn said something a little bit earlier and and, and you talk about, you know, we're going to have to deal with it one way or the other and oftentimes from places we don't want to, and I'm talking specifically in the church context, discipleship and mission. And I, mean, I, I do think, I mean, one point, Chris, is, is pushing things down to the concrete, because I think that's where, I mean, one of the, there's this great line in this book, Theory's Empire, where, where he talks about um, the fact that, um, of course, they don't, the new totalitarians, if you will, the, the critical theorists, they, they love to be so general um, and um, uh, buffered from critique because that's the, la- that's the only thing that allows for them to have their totalitarian claim because their picture can't hold up. Um, here's a quote, social activism, which is really what this is about creating, requires a suspension of skepticism. In other words, you can't question its beliefs um, if the social goal is to be pursued with the necessary conviction that the goal is desirable. And you saw this recently. I don't know if you read the little article of critique in uh, Chronicle for Higher Education that just came out. Did you see that? Um, and where, uh, get the guy's name first, um, Peter Bogus, Bogassian, I guess. Yeah, I hope it's not bogus. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things um, he was talking about is the way in which um, he's gotten, he's kind of probably a classic liberal in the sense that he, he's trying to, to maintain the ability to critique any kind of ideas in the university. And he writes an article, criticism of ideas is not harassment. Right. And so one of the things he says, and it's around this very point, and this is, I think, very worth um, noticing, he goes, um, 
he goes, it is worth noting that criticism is framed as a harassment only by academicians working in certain domains of thought that are in critical theories orbit. This is exactly yeah, what, Which is ironic. Yeah, yeah. he goes, <laughs> civil engineers are not claiming that criticism of truss bridge design is harassment. Physicists are not claiming that they're being persecuted when their contributions to quantum theory are criticized. Philosophers are not claiming victimization when their arguments about free will are scrutinized. Claiming criticism is harassment occurs when a discipline's north star is not truth but ideology. And I, I think he really hits the same, oh, yeah, the, the, the same point here. But uh, one of the things I think that, that allows, uh, again, when it gets, how it gets employed, as we were talking about, is this move to, to uh, identity and the issues of identity. Because I think that's the place at which it gets people fired up and gets them involved. But, I th you know, that, but that's also the place where I think, you know, Joe Sixpack or Joe Lunchpail or however you want to talk about just a regular person uh, gets really irritated because... Uh, he, he or she would say what uh, that academician just noted applies also at the police department, yeah. applies also at the grocery store, applies also at the technology firm where we write code. I don't yeah. really care what your identity is. Code, there's good code, there's bad code. Yeah. I don't care if you're a man or woman. There is this matter of being able to carry people out of burning buildings. And physically, generally speaking, men, 99 times out of 100, do that better. You know, so there are these things that people say, there's just this objective reality here, and we, and we have sacrificed it. We see it right now with, our, with the nonsense with regard to women in combat in the, in the military. And, and the s studies that don't need to be conducted that demonstrate that mixed gender uh, units perform less well than those that are made up strictly of men. If, the, if having a mixed unit, combat unit, ever gave anyone an advantage in warfare, it would have been employed for centuries. The, the, the reason why we, do the, we conduct warfare the way we do is because it works. Yeah. You win. Yeah. You win when you do it a certain well, way. Well, that's why there's a, you know, again, I, I don't think, I, I think the objectives of this kind of new totalitarian are, are all about restructuring the, the power interests with, with players. But, but the thing is, is it touches reality at some point, and, and people are affected at different levels. Yeah. There are people who are affected at the level of employment. They yeah. are not considered sure. for jobs that they're qualified for. They're affected at the level of, of performance in the sense that the organizations that are performing functions that people rely on can't perform those functions as yeah. well as they did before. Well, and I think that's what the destructive side of this. I mean, right. I, do, I do think it has very demonic roots. It's so anti-order, and, and all of its reorderings are, 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 are not serious. But, not, but it is serious. But it's they're, serious, they're, but, they're, but what I'm saying is, is, is it's not serious in the sense well, that know, it has I, the ability to have teeth, but, but it's not. It, it's serious in its repercussions. Well, that, that's yeah. the thing, and, and yeah. that's where I think... And, 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 one of the things that all of this stuff is really good at yeah. is criticizing structures. It is not, as Chris would point out in, in other contexts, it's not so good at building them. But this there is, is my, no clear yeah. end game. But see, that's my point about forcing them into the concrete, because this is, like, concrete actions are just concrete ways in which you're going to structure things to demonstrate. They have all their plans, but at the end of the day, how much of it is nothing more than rhetoric? 
Well, I can't tell you the, yeah. no, the number of hours I've wasted with these people. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, when I'm, when I'm reflecting on this kind of stuff, yeah. I'm not reflecting about it abstractly. Yeah. I can tell you, you know, meetings I was in, yeah. Yeah. nonsense that I heard, mm -hmm. time that was given over to people who had nothing of importance to say, yeah. but we wanted to hear what they had to say because we wanted them to feel good. I mean, yeah. just yeah. loads and loads of nonsense. But, it, but, it, but the thing that gets me, and again, it's, it's the way it has to be, well, because of the vagueness, I mean, here's a great point. Uh, Todd Gitlin uh, is writing The Cant of Identity. For those out there, the word can't is not the way English say Emmanuel can't. They do. Um, <laughs> can't, but can't, can't means nonsense. That's right, right. That's right. Um, it, it, you know, it's sort of uh, hypocritical or, or sanctimonious talk, if right, you will. Right. So the more vociferously a term is trumpeted in public, and we're talking about political correct terminology, the more contestable it is under scrutiny. The automatic recourse to a slogan, as if it were tantamount to a value or an argument, is frequently a measure of the need to suppress a difficulty or a vagueness underneath. And this is my point, is this stuff's destructive because it doesn't touch down into the concrete, and when it finally does is when it's doing its, its damage. Um, Kant is the hardening of the aura around the accounts concept. Kant automates thought, substitutes for deep assessment, creates an illusion of firmness where there are only intricacies, freezes a fluid reality. Kant is sincere, usually, and its sincerity also protects against scrutiny. Kant comforts, and Kant tends to corrupt its opposition into a counter-Kant. There is the cant of identity and the cant that rises with a righteous and selective indignation against the political correctness of the left. So, I mean, it, it, this is, there is this way in which this absolutism becomes protected because it creates around itself this aura by this, this, um, this superficial, sanctimonious talk, um, claims for justice, claims for equity, and all these things. But when you get down to the concrete, where it actually takes effect, its ways of addressing problems are destruction. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, that's all it is, and you're seeing it happen. Yeah, you hear it everywhere. Yeah, you see it with with cities who are defunding police departments, mm -hmm. cities who are actually removing protections uh, that were intended to help police officers do their work, uh, and then six months later saying, "Why is the?" Crime spiraling out of control. And, <laughs> That's right. Oops, and 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 sort of backtracking, but not admitting they were wrong. Yeah. Oh yeah. No. It just, just so they just sort of like just quote the slogan, key terms for who's to blame, and and you know every, all's forgiven. Right. And then spend six and a half million dollars to recruit new police officers yeah. like they did in Minneapolis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's the kind of nonsense we're dealing with with these people. Yeah. And and I and again the the, the interests vary. But I, I think my, my concern of bringing it up is we, we've, we've, this isn't about making room at the table for different perspectives. This is about a new totalitarianism, yeah. a new way of, of basically crushing anything that is in opposition to its very narrow and very protected yeah, I think that you've orthodoxy. Done, yeah, I think you're doing a really important service, Tom. I think yeah. that... Uh, one of the things, you know, this kind of works in both directions. So, like, when I deal with academics, uh, I press the, you know, the, the sole matter of the concrete. When yeah. I'm dealing with people who deal with and deal in nothing but the concrete, <laughs> I try to help them understand that the world of academe, the ivory, so-called ivory tower, has far more influence than they know or, or can understand, and that they're actually living in the shadows of, of 
people who said things, you know, 150, 200 <laughs> years right, ago. That's well, right. Actually, the, the thing that's interesting on this is that, you know, Marx predicted the uprising of the proletariat. Right. Um, Lenin added the peasants. Mao dropped the proletariat and just kept the peasants. Gramsci comes along, and Italian communist, 1930s, and he says that what we're gonna, the, the, the new thing that we need is a union of the intellectuals and the proletariat. Yeah. yeah. And then the proletariat drops out and it's just the intellectuals that drive it. Yeah. Right, right, yeah, that's one of the things that uh, Christopher Lash talked about in the revolt of the elites. Yeah, and it's yeah. interesting because uh, uh, the same, same writer, uh, Gitlin, uh, talks about the strategy of the left is they were talking about when, when kind of a, at least a face appearance, conservatism was kind of occupying the political system at the time. Um, there was an assemblage of groups identified with the left that were marching on through the English departments in the university. They were seizing power in women's studies, African-American studies, ethnic studies, insurgencies that began in claims of dignity, recoveries from exclusion and denigration. And it just talks about the thrill they had, that they actually had the genuine vehicle for social transformation while everyone else was, was doing platitudes on the political stage. Stage. Yeah, and yeah. and he really traces the way in which identity uh, politics um, had, had, I mean, identity, um, the notion of identity became central to the way in which these people strategized to to basically create this new absolutism and this 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 undermining of you know yeah. the, the the current social fabric. Yeah, uh, well, in the, you know, getting back to the concrete, the, mm -hmm. the we know that this stuff can't work. But as you note, Glenn, um, ideologies have a way of kind of living off the capital of the past for a long, 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 long time. Yeah. And so the, the big challenge that we face is how do you, how do you somehow uh, stand in such a way, you know, as, uh, you know, William F. Buckley said, a thwart history is yelling stop. <laughs> how do you do that um, when when the effects uh, are still uh, a, a way off, we st we have near-term effects, but the but the people who are suffering from those near-term effects are people that are considered well uh, unwashed, unimportant. Their opinions don't count. So let me give you an example. I I know guys who you know wanted to be cops, and they took the test. They they got the scores, and somebody who had minority status got the job, even though they scored lower on the test. Uh, and they are incensed, but their opinions just don't matter, it, because they're they're dismissed as well. Of course, you'd be incensed because you're a white supremacist, yada yada yada. <laughs> you know, no, I just wanted that job, and I was better qualified for that job than the person who got the job. When I got my doctorate in Renaissance and Reformation history. There were, I think it was 14 jobs in the country in tenure track positions that I was really qualified for. There were well over 100 candidates for those jobs. Stop. People studying PhDs for PhDs right now, take note. Take okay, note. go ahead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I yeah. got stories too, so we'll so, but. Of those 14 jobs, one of them went to a male. Ah. And he was a Canadian and the job was in Canada. Got it. The other 13 all went to women. Yep. Now, 
but that you, was back when there were women. <laughs> you, 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 you cannot tell me. That's, I, I've heard about I just women. Wanted to know. I've, I've heard I just, about women. I, didn't I read know about them in history books. I thought that that term was now oppressive. <laughs> Go you, ahead, Glenn. You, you, I'm sorry. You, 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 sorry. Can't, you can't tell me that that was not the oh, basis no. of a whole bunch of cooked searches, that they, no. they were determined to I'm, hire someone who failed an affirmative action position. Yeah, I, I was involved in some of that cooking. Yeah. So, you know, there's a dark past, a dark history to Chris Wiley. And I was Chris involved. was part of it. <laughs> I was. He I was, was a part of that meta-narrative. <laughs> I, th- I think you're, you're supposed to start off what you're about to say with, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. <laughs> and I did. I mean, I was... I was on the other team at one point, and uh, I'm, uh, now I'm on the, on the good guy side. I've always sided with the underdogs. <laughs> and then when he found out they weren't really the underdogs, that's why. That's when I left. That's when I left. But anyway, um, but, but I, I, I know exactly, because I was actually in some of those uh, conversations, you know, when we talked about sanctified affirmative action, that kind of stuff. And what we were saying is that uh, we're going to screen out a lot of highly qualified people who worked really hard and dedicated a lot of time and energy and spent a lot of money to get where they are so that we can affirm a particular class of people. That was what we did. That was exactly what we did. Yeah, and, and that, but I, and I think, I mean, I think a lot of times, the, again, the way that gets analyzed and looked at is through this lens of, of kind of harsh exclusion of some. It's not. I mean, one of the things I think that whenever we shortchange anyone in the process, anyone in the process of, of whether it is, it, what, we're, what we're shortchanging is virtue development and, and, and character fullness. That's exactly what and suffers, so And right? so what ends up happening when we do all this stuff to, to create conditions uh, that start well and end well, you know, well, the same for everybody, what we, what we don't do is allow for what it means to truly be human, which is maximally to to have our natures perfected, to to grow in virtue, um, both in in the skill and in the vocational level, but also on the whole holistic level, spiritually and aesthetically, every, everything else. And so, when you say basically that some somebody doesn't need to kind of even if they have odds to be, doesn't need to, to develop in those ways. They're just going to do this. And then you get into a situation, and then they, it's, it's C.S. Lewis, you, men without chests. We remove the organ, demand the function, then we're like, why isn't this person able to carry out this particular thing? Well, here's why, because we remove the organ. Yeah, why, why doesn't this person have to tell the truth? Well, because we continually reward them for the lies they've told. Well, and yeah, not penalizing crime. You're seeing teenagers after teenagers now just going out and committing heinous mur- everything with, without, you know, taking camera pictures of it, sending to their friends. Yeah, look why? What I, because look what I just exactly did. the I same thing. To kill a man. Yeah. You, you know, they've got they've got all their basics supplied for, and. All they need to do, I mean, they've, they've never had to develop the character to have to be able to embody a, a, a life that's responsible and duty-oriented in any way. And so there's a, there's a vacuum there that is, is, is an abyss. It's, a, it's, it's sinister. And I think now you're seeing, you know, when you get, you know, it's, you, know you remove Christianity from... from that enlightenment vision. Right. Um, instead of replacing a, a fuller Christian vision, you get rid of Christianity. You're getting a nasty beast. Yeah, and it has a way of working itself out in some very sort of amusing and 
practical ways. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember when Trump was elected, I I came across a uh, this is back 2016. I came across uh, something written by by a progressive lamenting or sort of oh it was one of these lived moment or lived experiences uh, an account of a lived experience. This guy had a, had a plumbing problem, and uh, he called. Uh, you know, a plumber, and the plumber came to his house, and it was a white man with a southern accent. And so this guy, and I think he was a homosexual, uh, was tremendously uh, sort of concerned that this, you know, what he assumed was a Trump voting plumber might might kill him him (laughs) in his apartment. And I just thought to myself, you know, first of all, if you knew how to you know, sort of clear your own pipes. You wouldn't have to call anybody. But I have a, I have a feeling that you have no, no uh, sort of capacity or facility to, to, to actually do anything physical yourself. But here you are sitting uh, in your bedroom, worried about the guy in the bathroom who simply wants to get the job done, get paid, and go home. Yeah. And, and usually do the job well. But that's all yeah. he's thinking about. Yeah. I know many plumbers. Yeah. You know, I've done a lot of plumbing. Yeah. I've worked in the, you know, the, the bathrooms of my tenants and cleaned their pipes or cleared their pipes. And believe me, I am not thinking about their political convictions. <laughs> I'm not thinking about anything related to their lifestyle, you know, except maybe this is an odd place. Uh, I just want to get the job done. They have great paid. art here, but everything else is very weird. <laughs> well, the art often was weird. I just want to go home. I just want to get this job done and get paid and go home. And, you, and this guy in the bathroom or the bedroom is afraid that I'm going to kill him because I'm a Trump supporter. I'm, I'm like, this is the kind of uh, sort of uh, well, this delus- di- you know, delusion that these people well, this live distrust, with. and this is what I mean, is this... You know, how do you get into a society? I mean, this is what I mean. There's a lot of explanation for how you get to that point. Um, you know, we've covered a lot of the reasons, frag- you know, the, the brokenness, relativism. This is, there's a whole series of these things. But this detachment from any shared lived experience and any right. shared, you know, um, one, I mean, this is connected to. Sorry for my straying of thoughts, but this connecting to what I kind of got this topic going with me again was when I saw a church buckling and wanting to fit in by having hosting this thing. I understand it in pressing times and you've got congregations and younger people, you're going to have to address issues and you can't just ignore them. Someone else will address them if you do. I understand there's time to shake the dust off your feet, but there's also a time to address the legitimate conversations kids are having, teenagers are having, and teaching them how to, to work through that. Um, but, but one of the things I saw is just the inability to see that what we have here are not two um, narratives, but we have two theological visions. One, well, Christianity trying to be faithful to itself, but now so weakened by so many that it's an easy temptation to allow this new absolutism become the big frame to which they read Christianity in. Um, and this this is something I've been on to for a long time, is this that we've so weakened the Christian metaphysic. What do I mean by that? The reality vision that Christianity and scripture sets forth. We've so detached our understanding of the human being and ethics from that vision to where this stuff makes such a vulnerable, I mean, the church is so vulnerable to this that 
you know, classic, you know, people who can have a confession are, are not knowing how to deal with it and address it. And what you have is, yeah, you have, you have two competing religions. Which oh, yeah. religion is going to have a say in the, in the church? And that's what that, this has become. Yeah, that's a good place to end it, end it because yeah. we've gone a little long. Um, this is uh, stuff that, we, these are themes, of course, we've addressed you know, a, a few times in the show. <laughs> but anyway, it's worth, uh, worth doing again. Anyway, we're glad that you listened to the Theology Podcast, and, and we really have to say thank you to all the folks who uh, send us notes, who share the show with other people. Our audience continues to grow. And then people just spontaneously give us money. Yeah. It's just amazing. We, we, we do very little in the way of uh, you know, asking for, for funds, but yeah. every once in a while, just out of the blue, someone gives us $1,000. And it's like, wow. Thank you. Wow, yeah. And <laughs> yes, that, thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It really helps. Um, helps us to take care of the costs that are kind of the fixed costs of the show. Yeah, and uh, again, it's always worth mentioning. None of us get paid. We don't even we even pay for our own beers. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, we all keep separate tabs and but, we pay but, for ourselves. But we are open to. <laughs> <laughs> and I just wanted to also thank some uh, friends that came out today. We yeah, yeah, good it's good friends. to see the Wesleys. It's yeah. great to have them here. Anyway, thanks for listening to the show today, and uh, we'll talk to you again in a little while next week. In fact, bye bye. Bye bye.